Welcome to the Haber Show. The playoffs are in full swing, and this week's guest is someone special. He has covered the NBA longer and better than anyone I know. He's Mark Stein, the national reporter at the New York Times covering the NBA. Go subscribe to his newsletter at the Times and go subscribe to his Twitter feed at the Stein Line. Actually, the the dude has like 1.3 million followers. I don't know why I'm telling you this. It's like reminding you to breathe oxygen. If you're an NBA fan, of course you're following Mark Stein. On this episode, we'll talk about his feature on Steph Curry's obsession with popcorn, one of the coolest things I've read in the NBA this season. We'll also talk about the Golden State-Houston series and what he thinks about the state of the Los Angeles Lakers and where they go from here with LeBron James. But before we get into that, I want to give a few well wishes here on a more somber note. First, Boston Celtics president Danny Ainge, who suffered a mild heart attack this week in Milwaukee. Uh, Sometimes we read these people's names in the news, we watch them on TV, grew up with them, and we don't think of them as real human beings. Uh, Danny Ainge, all the best to you on your recovery. The good news is that the Celtics do say he is expected to make a full recovery. Here's to a speedy return to the proverbial court for Danny as he and his family and the Celtics organization go through this process. And secondly, something that hits close to home, I'm thinking a lot about Drew Picaro and Sean DeHart these last couple days. I don't know them personally, but I know Drew is a sports writer at the UNC Charlotte's college newspaper, The Niner Times, just a few miles from my home here in Charlotte. And Sean DeHart, another UNCC student who's from my home state in Connecticut, who cited a quote in his high school yearbook that I discovered Um, From Lou Gehrig, after he was diagnosed with ALS, the same disease that my mother is currently fighting, uh, Gehrig said, and this is the quote that Sean uh, cited in his yearbook, I might have had a tough break, but I have an awful lot to live for. Both students were shot this week on campus and are recovering from their wounds. Hit home for me in a literal sense. Um, There are two students who were killed and two others beyond Drew and Sean that are recovering. I'm rooting for you, Drew, and Sean, and everyone else involved and hurt. All those who are grieving here in the Charlotte area and beyond. I remember coming home from middle school and watching the Columbine News in my kitchen with my family. And 20 years later, we're still dealing with this. It's evil. It's all it is. It's evil. From one sports writer who grew up in Connecticut, all my best to you guys. I hope we meet soon one of these days. All right? Okay. That got a little serious. But I needed to say all that. So let's get on to the more fun stuff, okay? Without further ado, let's talk some NBA with Mark Stein. It's a pleasure to welcome in my friend, my former colleague at ESPN, my NBA colleague. He's at the New York Times. He's got a newsletter over there. He is a Kurt Gowdy Award winner from the Basketball Hall of Fame. Welcome to the Haber Show, my man. The Haber Show, I finally made it. Yes, I believe it is you who um, who put the capper on whether I should call it the Haberstro Show or the Haber Show. And I think it was in the New York Times, was it not? Was I right? You were right. You were absolutely right. Um, it was, the Haberstro it was a- has, a, has a much better ring than the Haberstro Show. The Haber Show is easy. It's, I mean, where's my T-shirt? I figured by now you'd have a full-on marketing campaign. Yeah. How about I just give you my like saliva soaked microphone? Would that work? No, you've given me enough knowledge. I'll settle for I'll settle for, I'll settle for your knowledge and the eternal jealousy. I'll put it on we can just start real here. I'll I'll just put it on record as I've told your your production sensei Jade Hoy for, for years. Nothing I'm eternally jealous that 
Jade and I never figured out anything on video as cool as the big number. Maybe my favorite short form NBA video element in NBA history. So thank you. Thank you. I, um, I, I, I gotta say, and we can start here. Um, one of my, you did one of my favorite pieces I've read this, this entire season. And I just, I appreciate the, the, the compliments, but I want to ask you a personal question here, uh, right off the bat. Which obsession is more intense, Mark Stein with glass-bottled Coke or Steph Curry with fresh popcorn? You know what? He might have me beat. What? I, I, I was amazed, and you being one of the most health-oriented writers in our profession, you tell me. When I heard that he consumes popcorn before every game, that, to me, took it to a whole new level. I asked his dad, would you ever have eaten popcorn before a game? no. I asked Steve Kerr, his coach, would you ever eat popcorn before the game? No. I wouldn't think, I mean, that would be something to, in my mind that would, would the taste and the salt and everything would linger with you onto the floor. But as we know, Stephen Curry is not your average human being. So it doesn't, it does not seem to be bothering him or slowing him down at all. That, that was an amazing story you wrote. If you haven't read it yet, um, go check it out on the digital platform too. Uh, just the video of how he gets his popcorn. Also the graphics of, I'm not even kidding about this. Steph Curry has a one through five grading system on five different categories. A grid you can find on New York Times. A grid of his scores for each team's popcorn in their arena that he eats before and then maybe after um, games, you can tell me. But this is incredible. He grades it one through five on five categories. What is it like? Crunchiness, saltiness, butteriness. What am I missing here? Here's the thing that, that amazed me. I'm getting all the credit for this story. He's the one who should get the credit. For in this day and age, with the media demands that are on these guys, the time and effort that he was willing to put in this thing. Basically, what happened was I saw a very short video clip of Steph talking about his popcorn, and he says in this video clip, I think it was from last season, I keep my own personal power rankings on the popcorn in every arena. <laughs> so you know me. I heard those two words, power rankings, and I you know, almost fell out of my chair. As you know, for 15 years, I did the power yes. rankings every day at ESPN. So I went to it, and I said, Dude, those are magic words for me. You know, power rankings. I want to see your power rankings. Would you be willing to do this and put this in print? And not only was he willing to do it, you know, as you said, five categories. And you know, I don't have it in front of me. I'm not, I mean, presentation is one of them. Freshness. Wait, presentation. Uh, explain yeah. that. What does that mean for him? He told me the story of this season in Miami. They were shoot around, and obviously, every team knows by now that Steph takes his popcorn very seriously and some of the ball boys told him at shoot around you're really going to be happy with the popcorn tonight <laughs> and when Steph got to the game that night and walked in the room there were two types of popcorn on wooden planks under heat lamps in the Warriors locker room and so that I guess qualifies as presentation you know the box that comes in is it is it special is it warm does he have to heat it because he also told me he doesn't he never changes the popcorn. However it comes, whatever the temperature, whatever the taste, whatever the salt, he just eats it the way so it is. He doesn't, so he doesn't but, bring his own uh, like Cajun, Cajun salt or he doesn't bring his own popcorn flavoring. I actually asked him. 
I actually asked him, and he said he actually was like, "Wow, that would that would be next level if I had my own little traveling condiment station." I didn't I didn't even use that in the story. <laughs> and then Raymond Ritter, Raymond Ritter, the Warriors tireless PR man. I I I told Steph, you know, you should just make Raymond have to carry around your, you know, your popcorn utensils from city to city. But Steph, Steph's too nice; he's not going to make Raymond do that. There's a photo in the story of I think it's the Dallas Mavericks survey like the the actual ballot for the Dallas Mavericks popcorn and I've got to say I'm a little I'm a little skeptical here there's cross out marks there's uh he scratches out like a four maybe a five I think you doctored it so that your home city would have the number one popcorn not only is it not doctored if you saw the print version which I have to give a shout out to Andrea Crutchmer she is one of the design maestros at the New York Times, and she did an absolutely unbelievable presentation putting this thing together. And, you know, Steph Curry's a massive golf fan. He might might like golf better than basketball. On a Masters Saturday in the New York Times, the whole front page of the Saturday New York Times, in the middle of the Masters, was Stephen Curry eating popcorn at his locker. The start of the popcorn story it jumps inside to a two-page double-truck spread, and Andrea found a way to scan all 30 ballots. And in the print version, all 30 ballots are basically make a rectangle around the whole package of the story. And the reason apparently there are these cross-out marks is because he filled these out on the plane and was really working on it. And Clay Thompson actually saw him on the plane filling these out and says that, that's Steph. He's a popcorn snob. So that's why I say my glass bottle Coke obsession, which you well know. I mean, I, I, I think he's got me beat. So in 2009, someone on Twitter said, Lower East Side, haven't been in a restaurant yet that doesn't serve Coke in glass bottles. Only way to enjoy it properly, as we all know. That was you. Not surprised. I'm three, sure I did say it. Three weeks later, you tweeted, Plastic bottles ruin drinks. They're too big. Don't stay cold, etc." Is safety such an issue that everything but Coke has to be plastic? Good quote. Another correct statement. So what is it? Is it about the, is there a taste? Because I did a story last year about bottled water obsession in the NBA. And believe, believe it or not, like for fans out there, we will talk about NBA, like actual basketball stuff later. But I have found that some of the most uh, well-read and to this day the stories that people come back to me for are the ones that aren't really about basketball it's about them as human beings and the things they're into bottled water Antoine Jameson told me that he can smell the difference between Fiji and a regular bottled water like like you could even pour it's not about the plastic it's about even if you poured a cup of Fiji water in a cup and then poured some other water in another cup, he would be able to smell the difference between Fiji and the rest. He'd be able to pinpoint it. He used to write Fiji on the side of his shoes because he was so obsessed with the bottled water over there. But what is it about a glass bottle, Coke? Let's get to the bottom of this. I hope I'm not like trying to violate the laws of physics here because with my luck, I am. But in my perception, Coke in a small eight ounce glass bottle just gets colder and just the absolute coldness of it. And I, yeah, I have a second fridge at home where I'm allowed to keep the temperature a little bit colder than norm. <laughs> and that's where I keep them all. They just come out so beautifully ice cold. And that is the way 
that the nectar of the gods was meant to be consumed. Wait, so do you put it on I ice wish. or is that I is wish. that a faux pas? No, I mean, no. I'll, I mean, putting it on ice is, is, I mean, I wouldn't put it on ice in a glass. I'd rather just put the bottle in ice. That's what oh, I like to do. And I, okay. I have been known to do and. I, I am, I'm ashamed to say that I've been known at restaurants to say, yeah, you know those buckets you have for champagne? Can you bring me one? I'm going to put my Coke bottles in there. Dude, I, I'm a mess. Do they oblige? Nobody wants, uh, yeah, I mean, with some quizzical stares, but yes. But no, nobody, wants to hear my, nobody wants to hear the tales of my sadness and weirdness. Your basic point is absolutely correct. I honestly can say in 26 years covering this league, I'm not sure I've had a better response to a story than the popcorn story. It makes Stephen Curry an absolute alien when it comes to basketball and his shooting range and has, you know, changed the whole nature of what a good shot is in basketball. But his love of popcorn makes him very relatable to a lot of people and people they identify, you're right, they identify with stories like that. One of the hardest things to do is find a story that no one else has told about the Warriors. And not only did you find one, it's one that... The was... hardest. Not, not one of them, the hardest. They are the most... I don't know that the White House has as many reporters covering them as the Golden State Warriors, and many, many good ones. It is... Uh... It is a challenge, to say the least. So you just came back from Houston. Uh, we're taping this on a Thursday. Game three is on Saturday in Houston. Uh, you just came back from the Oracle. We'll actually talk about basketball soon, but I'm a little amazed at how little this series has become about basketball. I feel like you need a Nobel Prize uh, in physics to understand landing zones and what is a foul and what is not a foul. I feel like you need a PhD in optometry to understand what's going through James Harden's eyeballs and what, whether that's going to be affecting his play going forward. And of course, then you get to Stephen Curry's finger injury, his finger dislocated in game two. And I was like, oh my, the whole postseason is changing in this moment. And then apparently you can just pop it back in and you're fine. Uh, and for the greatest shooter of all time, in my opinion, uh, it didn't seem to bother him too much. But the biggest story, and one I wanted to ask you about, is about the refereeing because I've been covering this sport for maybe a decade, not on the road. I haven't been in arenas a percentage as much as you have. You haven't been to every postseason game, but you've probably clocked in as many postseason games as anybody in the league covering over the last 30 years. Have you seen a playoff game, not finals, a playoff game, with this much talk and controversy about refereeing uh, as this series right here with the Houston Rockets and Golden State? Yeah, to me, the talk is really the new part of this or, you know, just the amount of noise that these situations generate. I mean, we, you know, there have been ref controversies and teams trying to politic for better calls in the next game for as long as I can remember and, you know, Steve Kerr's coach, Phil Jackson in Chicago, you know, I think he's kind of widely seen as one of the guys who invented this. Um, you know, it, it, it was, it, it's been going on throughout my whole time covering the league. But really the difference now is it's a 24-hour-a-day discourse. There's talk shows on all day long. Social media never stops. And the cameras, the angles – the ability for the fans to dive into the argument, you know, fans who are adept at finding the videos, finding the clips, making the clips, putting them on social media, 
just the debate gets whipped into a frenzy that in the Jordan days that just was not possible. I mean, in the Jordan days, you know, there were two or three sports centers a day and, you know, you didn't have talk shows all day long. You obviously didn't have social media. You just there weren't the outlets to do this. And now with these camera angles and how many shots, it's just that's what makes it absolutely crazy. But I will say I thought in a weird way the injuries were so nasty and the guys were able to play, both of them were able to play through them. It actually and thankfully nudged us away from the referee madness because it was just too much. And, and I mean, I don't think anyone enjoyed it. It was game one in the aftermath was thoroughly unenjoyable and dispiriting. And this is a series that, you know, I think a lot of people were looking forward to because last year it was the de facto finals and whoever wins this series is going to be the instant favorite to win it all again. So we do not, this is not what we want to be spending our time on is, is obsessing over landing zones. That's, that's, that's not fun for anybody. Right, and and in the memos that ESPN reported, uh, uh, Zach Lowe and Rachel Nichols reporting that the Rockets prepared an audit uh, using the NBA's own evaluation of the calls in that series last year between the Rockets and Golden State, and then produced uh, an actual like output of points that they were cost by the referees. One of the things in there is that there's a 48-minute report that the league sends to the teams involved in the game. Uh, they don't share it with other teams. But do you think now we have the last two-minute report, do you think we're going to see a 48-minute report soon? I don't know about soon. I guess it will just depend on if the calls just be, you know, there's always the cry for transparency, transparency. If the league is doing this, why not just make everything transparent? But, you know, then there's the flip side of the argument that the refs have such a difficult job as it is and their errors are highlighted in the two minute report. And I do think the NBA does a better job than any league of admitting its mistakes and any blown call in the last two minutes, they put it in there. It's there for everyone to see. Do they really need to publicly admit every mistake in a 48 minute? Well, you talked to Monty McCutcheon. What did he say in your, in your reporting? Look, I didn't ask him that specific question. I did not ask him if we're headed for. Well, I'm, the, no, I'm not saying about 48 minutes. I'm just saying his perspective in your reporting and your story, it seemed to be like they are totally copping to this. Like they understand that they're going to be mistakes and they're going to own it. Yeah, and I and and I think it's that's the right attitude. Yeah. And and look, this, this game is impossible to officiate. I mean. You know, Steve Kerr said it the other day, and I find myself asking this to my, you know, rhetorically every time these, who would want to do this job? I mean, I know it's a well-compensated job. You can make good money as an NBA referee, especially when you get tenure and you're in the league for a long time and you get, you go to the playoffs. But comparing this to, to soccer, you know, one of my other favorite sports. In soccer now, when players intentionally try to dive for penalties, there's video review. There's yellow cards for diving. Like, is that is that where we want to go? Where we're going to now have to review three pointers and give yellow cards to guys who kick their legs out? I mean, is that the direction we really want to take this? Because here, in real time, the landing zone call—you can never get it right in real. I don't know how these guys get it right in real time. It's so we're subjective, awesome. too. Like, how are we're you- all awesome when when we have replays? We able to say, oh, he he didn't. You know, he slid under the shooter there. Yeah, on replay, you'll get it right every time. 
but these guys aren't doing it with replay. So it's, uh, you know, I, I have sympathy here because yeah. it is, I, I wouldn't want to do it. I'll say that. Well, I, I talked to a former official this week just about this whole situation. And he's like, they, the people in the league office and the people who review these calls in these audits or in these uh, reviews for the last two minutes reports, they're getting like nine cam reviews for every play. Think about that. Like the technology that they have at their disposal to see if a call is right or wrong. And even then there's a gray area. Like even then there has to be some subjectivity to it. But I do think that this is kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of where the league is going. The lifting of the um, federal ban on, on gambling and just the information out there on refereeing. I just feel like this is going to be the start of a, a new era in the league because it's just hard to accept money from MGM Grand and, and all these gambling entities, uh, these casinos, and then have to publicize all this information without it just continuing the snowball effect of information coming out. So I thought it was an amazingly well-officiated game in game two. For all the talk about officiating going into game two, uh, I think it's kind of dumbed down somewhat. And so I don't think all those fireworks that we were expecting game two will carry into game three. But uh, speaking of fireworks, I want to talk about something I think we both feel very strongly in is that the Lakers should have someone running their organization, someone to replace Magic Johnson. I don't know how much work he did behind the scenes, but I got to imagine having someone uh, who can steer the Lakers organization uh, in his place would be a good idea. Where do the Lakers stand on that front and the, the coaching circle? Here's the thing. Every indication coming out of Lakerland is that Rob Palenka will stay in charge. So, I can talk about it. You can talk about it. We can all shout to the rooftops. It doesn't look like the Lakers have any interest in changing the general structure of their organization. And, you know, I'm, I've been on record that I think that's a huge mistake. I'm certainly not alone there. There are a lot of people around the league and a lot of Laker fans calling out and just baying at their team to make a change here and step away from the kind of MO that the Lakers have always had, which is keep it in-house and, and only have former Lakers in these prominent positions. No, I mean, the Lakers are the most glamorous franchise in the league. They are one of the richest franchises in the league just by virtue of their TV deal. And it boggles my mind why they don't just take a big pile of money and go after Bob Myers, R.C. Buford, Sam Presti, Donnie Nelson, any number of of, of executives who've proven it and done it and request permission and throw some huge money at them and make them say no. Run out the ground ball. Find out if you have any chance to convince these people because the Lakers need a major overhaul. Six seasons out of the playoffs, it's the worst run in franchise history. And the Clippers, look, the, the Clippers are never going to overtake the Lakers and if we if we really measure it on fandom, you know, it's still such a disparity that it's, you know, in some ways it's laughable to say the gap is closing. But just the fact that there is a gap now that we can measure and see and the Clippers continue to make move after move after move that nudges them in a positive direction. I mean, if that doesn't wake the Lakers up, I don't I don't know what will, but but it hasn't. And they're they're going to hire a coach with the current regime and they're going to proceed the way it is right now. It's been reported that here's the crew that were was interviewing candidates, coaching candidates, Kurt Rambis, 
former Laker and being in their front office recently. His wife, Linda Rambis, who is the executive director of special projects, whatever that is. My guy, Amin Hassan called her the, the shadow owner of the Los Angeles Lakers. You have Jeannie Buss, her two brothers, the offspring of, of Jerry Buss. You have Rob Palenka, who is Kobe's longtime agent, the COO of the of the Lakers in those meetings to hire their next coach. I'm surprised that like at this point, like they just didn't make up like a Lakers mascot in these meetings, like that they were in on these meetings or like Adam Morrison, who won a championship for the Lakers. I would believe that because it just seems like this is just a, a caricature of what nepotism in a front office would look like is that just anyone who is being associated with making this decision just has to have a tie to the Lakers at some point. To give this job to Magic Johnson, I considered that a very natural move for Jeannie Buss. I understood why she did it. And that was the ultimate in honoring her father's legacy. I I understand all that. But to me, that was the one mulligan. They tried it. It didn't work. Now you have to do something drastically different. And when Bob Myers went to Golden State, I think that kind of made teams around the league think, wow, agent running a front Mm. office. That's interesting. Let's look at that model. And the Lakers, you know, Laker defenders could say, well, Rob Polinka was hired under the same premise, but it's not the same premise. Bob Myers is one of the most well-liked just people around the league that I've ever seen. I don't know anybody that has a, a bad word to say about Bob Myers. And, you know, relationships really do matter in this business to a great Degree. Rob Polinka, to put it charitably, is a polarizing figure. He does not have the relationship and does not engender the goodwill that Bob Myers does. And also, let's not forget, Bob Myers spent a full year in Golden State apprenticing, observing. They didn't just bring Bob in and put him in charge. Now, they hired him with the idea that he would take over, but he spent a year there under Larry Riley learning the ropes learning the front office business because he had been an agent. He'd never worked in a team atmosphere before. So why the Lakers are convinced that Rob Palenka, who seems to have so many people around the league who don't want to deal with him, why they insist that he's the guy who has the vision and the experience to help them dig out of this massive hole. I have no idea, but that's, you know, there, they think, you know, they think people like me are crazy for saying it. So you well, know, the, but, you know, it's up, it's up to them to prove us wrong now. Right. It's six straight years of them saying you, you media people are wrong. Right. It's like six straight years of them being uh, out of the playoffs. So I'm not ready to give them the benefit of the doubt. They did get LeBron. OK. I don't know if that was them courting LeBron or if that was LeBron just saying, I want to be in L.A. and this makes the best sense for me on and off the court. Uh, it hasn't worked Bill, out for Bill him. Plasky of the Bill Plasky of the L.A. Times had the greatest line there. LeBron sold himself. <laughs> LeBron signed himself, rather. LeBron signed himself to the Lakers. So they're they're interviewing Monty Williams, apparently, who you're you're saying is going to be going to Phoenix if he wants the job. But uh, Ty Lue, if they hire Ty Lue, there was a report I saw that the reason why they haven't hired Ty Lue is because they don't want to make it seem like LeBron is running the show. What are we doing here? Like, what are we... like? I don't know if there's any sort of 
rhyme or reason of how they're going about their coaching search. But if they're if they were so ready to move on from Luke Walton, you would imagine they would have someone in place who they were going to hire. And it's been a couple weeks since since they parted ways with Luke Walton. Is Ty Lue going to be the coach here? You think they can take the position that hiring Ty Lue would be giving LeBron too much power? If if I mean, if you want to look at it that way, I suppose you can. But here's the reality. LeBron is a Laker for at least two more years. The third year is an insane player option. I don't remember the exact number, 40-something million, when he'll he'll be, what, 37? So, look, if anybody can walk away from that and go somewhere else, it's LeBron James. I think he'll he'll find a way to recoup, recoup the money if he needs to. But for at least the next two years, you have LeBron as the centerpiece of your team and a roster that has a lot of questions around it. So I think you better get a coach who you know LeBron is going to respond to. And of the available candidates, it's Ty Lue, and it's not close. So, look, Monty Williams has worked with LeBron in the past, and Monty Williams is a great communicator who has earned the respect of dozens of players around this league. And maybe he can come in there, and you know he and LeBron would have a great working relationship. But if it's me, if it's my team, I don't really want to chance it. I want to get a coach that I know has the best chance of reaching LeBron because anything the Lakers achieve over the next two seasons, it starts with getting LeBron best in his maximum engagement. And I don't think they've had that to this point. LeBron James, he's a Fiji guy. I was told by his, uh, one of his closest people, his confidants, just whispering in the locker room once, he's a Fiji guy. Like it was a state secret. I don't know uh, if he's going to be drinking water in the playoffs anytime soon, uh, how that will all shake out and whether the Lakers will land a big-time free agent, uh, but we will be keeping an eye on all those happenings as well as what happens in, in D.C., who's going to take over for running the, the show there, uh, who's going to be the Memphis coach, the Cleveland coach, lots of holes to be filled. No one better to have on the podcast than you, Mark Stein. Uh, go follow him on the Stein line on Twitter. Go subscribe to the New York Times newsletter. Go have yourself a glass bottled Coke. Uh, any last? No, last no, 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 no. We got no. I, I got to advocate water. Next, by the next time I'm on, I hope I, I hope we're talking about my my new water consumption habits. I, I'm I told you know Wait a Draymond Green. I'm really really angry with Draymond Green because he just made looking twenty losing twenty pounds look so damn easy. And I'm like it just I, I see him now and. He's a rail again, and it just—it's it, it, really. Uh, I'm jealous. He looks great. He looks. Uh, he he looks every bit the defensive player of the year that he uh, that he can be. So, um, I, I'm not. I don't even. I don't drink bottled water. I always just drink it from the tap. Apparently, there's electrolytes in there that you can't get from filtered water. So, I'm a guy who likes the the little Yeti thing with the ice cubes and the and the and the tap water. I'm good with that. So. Again, thank you, Mark, for joining the Haber Show podcast. Thank you so much for writing the Haber Show in the New York Times. I should print that out. I should have a copy of it and have it on my wall next to my bedside table. Something to remember my guy, Mark Stein, for putting the Haber Show. You should, get, Haber you should Show. get it framed. Yes. You should tell Mrs. Haber Show that you want it, you want it for Father's Day in a frame. <laughs> All right. I'll, I will send this clip to her so that she gets an idea. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, and we'll talk soon. Hopefully we'll see you. Uh, we'll see each other down the road. All right, brother. Good, good catching up. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of The Haber Show. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your dogs, tell your cats, tell your hamsters. I used to have a hamster when I was a kid. Um, I think her name was Sandy, maybe? Anyway, um, thanks for subscribing and listening and all that. Uh, Even if you don't listen to this or if you don't like it, uh, subscribe anyway. Be a big help. All right, until next time on The Haber Show.